take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokers and tokettes And non-toking lovers of liberty It is Thursday, January 28, 2016 And it's got to be 420 Somewhere in the world Welcome to the show. It's our penultimate show here from Rolla J Studios in beautiful legal Potland, Oregon. Yes, unfortunately, we are headed out. Oh, I know. It's sad. We are leaving our uh, domicile here uh, as of Monday, February 1st, and we will be broadcasting from on the road as part of what I'm calling my Legalize America 2016 tour or the fill in the back tour, whichever. Uh, but we are going on the road to meet all of you tokers and tokets and non-toking lovers of liberty across this country and especially in the non-legal places. If you've been following my columns at MarijuanaPolitics.com, you'll know that I had a very interesting time back in my home state of Idaho, uh, the state that is surrounded by marijuana reform. It is one of nine states that remain that have Absolute marijuana prohibition, no decrim, no medical, no legalization, not even CBD oil. And Idaho is one of nine. I believe it's, if I can do this from memory, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, West Virginia, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and mm, there's another one. And I can't remember which one it is, but uh, that's it, folks. Uh, there's just a few of them left. And Idaho surrounded all around by uh, reform on every side. You've got uh, Washington and Oregon with legalization, Nevada voting on legalization this election, Utah with CBD oil, Wyoming with CBD oil, Montana with medical marijuana, and Canada with medical and about to pass legalization. So Idaho, you are surrounded. So we'll be going all across the country, all across this continent uh, to meet all of you. So if you want to uh, keep in touch, follow me at RB Show 420. That's the show Twitter feed and my personal Twitter feed at Radical Russ, and we'll keep you in touch. All right, for today's show, all sorts of great guests coming on today's show, kind of extended segments today because we're going to uh, let you hear the speech from Cody Jorgensen. He's a professor of criminal justice at Boise State University. And he was one of the speakers at the Idaho Marijuana Town Hall that the Idaho State Police and Drugs are chickened out of uh, the day of the show. So uh, I thought I he was a great professor. He had a, a beard that was so Portland worthy. I felt right at home uh, listening to him speak. And he had great points to make from a criminal justice data perspective. So we'll give an extended drug war data mining today to Professor Co Cody Jorgensen from Boise State University. That's coming up on today's show. And Today is Thursday, so we've got a visit from another member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition in our Cops Say Legalized Drug segment. Former Massachusetts At Assistant Attorney General John Amabile will be on with us, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing the name, so we'll find out how it's pronounced. Amabile, perhaps? Uh, 
I hope he can uh, forgive me for butchering it, but uh, he'll be on at uh, 40 after. Usually we're at 30 after, but we've got that extended segment. So that means we're going to have to push some of the other segments into hour two, our Toker Talk radio hour. So in drug war data mining today, we're going to take a look at a new poll that's come out for the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., on their support of marijuana reform and opposition to Congress meddling in their marijuana reform. We've got time for a radical rant in the second half hour, and that's about this new blockbuster story. I've seen it on ABC News, top-of-the-line headlines, Associated Press, on how drug dealers are using Colorado legalization as a cover to traffic marijuana elsewhere. Like, that's Colorado's problem. We'll talk about that in the Radical Rant in Hour 2. Plus, we'll take your phone calls and examine a little further the Native American church that's suing to be able to send weed in the mail. All of that coming up in Hour 2, so stick around. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. From high atop Mount Soldad in San Diego, California, 100 feet above sea level. Good morning. It's good news with cannabis nurse Heather. This plant is amazing. Positive change is happening. We did it. No matter who you are, you can make a positive impact on the world. I would rather be illegally alive than legally dead. And that quote helped to give you strength. Nurse Heather is only on CannabisRadio.com. Good morning, Cannabis Nurse Heather. The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest growing business association in the fastest growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel One on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. It's time for the Cannabis Radio News. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Cannabis Radio News is now available exclusively at CannabisRadio.com. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis Radio News. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, January 28, 2016. Normal reports that Floridians will decide on a proposed constitutional amendment this November that seeks to permit the physician-authorized use and distribution of cannabis for therapeutic purposes. Proponents of the measure, United for Care, collected more than the 683,000 signatures required to place the measure on the November ballot, the Florida Division of Elections has confirmed. The ballot measure, entitled 
use of marijuana for debilitating conditions will appear before voters as Amendment 2. Passage of the amendment would permit qualified patients to possess and obtain cannabis from state-licensed facilities. According to a November poll, 62% of Florida voters say they support the passage of the amendment. According to Florida law, 60% of voters must approve a constitutional amendment in order for it to become law. In November 2014, Floridians... narrowly rejected a similar amendment which received 58% of the vote. A new a new poll finds that 3 out of 5 New Mexico residents support the taxation of recreational marijuana legalization in New Mexico. The survey by Albuquerque-based Research and Polling Incorporated found that 61% of residents would back legislation to legalize pot sales among adults 21 and over, while 28% were opposed. Quote, we just said straight up, do you support or oppose a bill that would legalize, regulate, and tax marijuana sales for adult use in New Mexico, said pollster Brian Sanderoff, president of Research and Polling. The The results showed stronger support for legalization of marijuana sales among men, Hispanics, adults under 35, Democratic and independent voters, and those not registered to vote. Among Republicans, 43% voiced support for legalization. Support for legalization rose to 69% when residents were informed that tax revenue generated by marijuana sales would be used to pay for health care and substance abuse programs. The Oregonian reports that leaders of a Native American church have sued the U.S. Postal Service in federal court after the government seized marijuana that church leaders say was intended for religious use by a member on in Ohio. Leaders of the Utah-based Oklahoma Native American Church said that the federal government violated their right to religious freedom when the authorities seized marijuana intended for use as part of Native American spiritual healing practices by a member who suffers from cancer. The suit claims that the church's use of the U.S. Postal Service to send sacramental cannabis to a member in Ohio are protected by the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which, among other things, protects Native American use of peyote. In a written statement, the U.S. Postal Service said the package was seized, quote, based on obvious signs that it contained a controlled substance. Under federal law, regardless of state law, a person is prohibited from sending controlled substances such as marijuana through the mail, end quote. The San Francisco Chronicle reports that the California legislature has moved to pass a bill that corrects a mistake in the state's historic medical marijuana laws passed last year. Assembly Bill 21 deletes a provision that lawmakers inadvertently left in the legislation that said cities and counties had to create their own medical marijuana regulations by March 1st or the state would assume the responsibility. Lawmakers did not mean to set a deadline. The deadline, however, caused local governments to panic at the prospect that they would lose local control of medical marijuana regulation, and many cities simply banned cultivation. On Thursday, the Assembly passed AB 21 in a 65 to nothing vote after the Senate passed it Monday 35 to 3. It now heads to Governor Jerry Brown, who is expected to sign it. The Chicago Tribune reports that former Super Bowl champion and Chicago Bears quarterback Jim McMahon says an unfairly demonized drug helped him recover from the pain of his football career, medical marijuana. McMahon got his medical marijuana card in Arizona, where he lives, after it was approved by a voter referendum in 2010. Before that, he said he'd been taking 100 Percocet pills a month for pain in his shoulders, neck, and arms. Quote, they were doing more harm than good, he said. This medical marijuana has been a godsend. It relieves me of the pain, or thinking about it anyway. End quote. On a typical day, McMahon will smoke marijuana in the morning to help him get up, a little in the afternoon, depending on how he feels, and before bed, saying he couldn't sleep without it. His comments come as Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner considers whether to approve eight more medical conditions to add to the list of about 40 that qualify for medical marijuana in Illinois. 
This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, January 28, 2016. I'm Russ Belville. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. We all know that Prohibition was a disaster. It forced alcohol into the underground market where it was controlled by criminals, and consumers did not know what they were getting. It made us a nation of hypocrites and lawbreakers. Marijuana Prohibition has caused a lot of the same problems. That's why most Vermonters agree it's time for a more sensible approach. Tell your state senator it's time to end prohibition and start regulating marijuana in Vermont. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Thanks, everybody. We uh, got back from Boise, Idaho. Tuesday, we were at the Idaho Marijuana Town Hall, and we streamed it live to over 8,000 listeners. But in case you missed the live stream, we've got a bit of it for you. One of the three of us who showed up on the pro side to face off against the three on the anti side from the Idaho State Police and Idaho Drug Czar's office, who canceled the day of the presentation, was... Professor Cody Jorgensen, he is a criminal justice professor at Boise State University, and uh, we've got his presentation on the facts about marijuana legalization and the fight for the end of marijuana prohibition. So this is Boise State Professor Cody Jorgensen. Um, Our next speaker will be Dr. Cody Jorgensen. Uh, Dr. Jorgensen is an assistant professor in the criminal justice department here at Boise State. His areas of specialty include policing, biosocial criminology, and criminal justice policy. Prior to coming to Boise State last semester, he was an adjunct professor for the criminology department at the University of Texas at Dallas and a research assistant for the Carruth Police Institute at the Dallas Police Department. Uh, Please welcome Dr. Cody Jorgensen. And if you're one of my students, make sure you make yourself known before you leave, okay? So 
I'm going to preface this by saying that I have no vested or personal interest in what this ballot initiative accomplishes. You know, um, I'm not personally an enthusiast of the devil's lettuce. Um, however, <clears throat> the purpose uh, of me being here is um, I want to talk about a lot of uh, the myths surrounding marijuana use, marijuana prohibition. <clears throat> um, so to start off, just do a little thought experiment with me. <clears throat> Pretend you have cancer. So you have cancer. Who are you going to talk to and get your advice for, uh, from regarding your, your, your cancer treatment? Should you get it from the politicians and the pundits? Should you go to some new age guru who's going to tell you to realign your chakras with an energy crystal? Or are you going to go talk to an oncologist? Um, if you're a rational person, you're probably going to go to the oncologist, you know, a medical professional who's going to give you advice on surgery, on chemotherapy, and radiation, because these are what medical science tells us are the most effective ways to treat your cancer. So that's what re uh, reasonable, rational people do is they, when it comes to their, you know, medical health, you know, they go talk to the doctor. You know, if you go, if you treat your cancer with energy crystals, you're probably going to die. So... A rational, reasonable person goes to an oncologist. And why is this? Is because when it comes to our personal health, we expect and we demand the best, most up-to-date, current uh, medical treatments that the medical science has to offer. <clears throat> so the question becomes, why don't we have this same sort of approach when it comes to public policy? You know, as taxpayers, you know, we should expect and we should demand that our public policy is based on the best, most rigorous scientific evidence, not, uh, you know, political agendas, <clears throat> um, propaganda, misinformation, things like that. Um, unfortunately, in the criminal justice world, much of our criminal justice and crime control policies are based on misinformation, based on propaganda, they're based on anecdote, based on speculation, based on the warm and fuzzy feelings for kids. Um, <clears throat> But whenever policy is based on these things, they're ineffective, they're costly. So they don't accomplish the goals they've met out to, you know, they, they set out to, to, to accomplish. Unless, of course, your goal is to, you know, uh, uh, legislate your morality. Then in that regard, they, yeah, sure, it could be con uh, considered uh, accomplished. But in terms of, you know, reducing social problems um, with public policy, if we want it to be effective, it has to be based on evidence. <clears throat> But a lot of our public policy isn't, um, especially in the criminal justice system, and particularly uh, when it comes to marijuana. Uh, we see this. Uh, we see this. You know, uh, marijuana probation uh, prohibition is is one of these instances where you know the justification for marijuana prohibition rests largely on misinformation, propaganda, anecdote, speculation, and you know our warm and fuzzy gut feelings. So collectively, I like to call these things myths. Um, when I say myth, uh, I don't mean that the, these, these beliefs are completely and absolutely wrong, because uh, with any myth, there is a kernel of truth. But myths, I, I refer these, these things to myths, is because they're more inaccurate than accurate. And these, the level of inaccuracy associated with a lot of the commonly believed things to justify marijuana prohibition, um, they're, you know, they're myth. They're, they're much more inaccurate than accurate. <clears throat> 
So a lot of these uh, commonly held beliefs, you know, that to justify uh, prohibition, if they were accurate, then sure, marijuana prohibition would be fully justified if these commonly believed things were accurate. But again, they're, they're not, they're myths. That's what I'm uh, uh, going to talk about. <clears throat> I'm just going to uh, bring up and touch, touch up on some of the main myths, some of the main um, inaccurate beliefs used to justify marijuana prohibition. <clears throat> the first, we've all heard our entire lives that marijuana is a gateway drug. Uh, we've heard this from several, pre uh, several presidential candidates. Um, back in 2012, you know, Mitt Romney told that MS patient that he did not favor medical marijuana because he believed that marijuana was a gateway drug. Um, <clears throat> in the recent GOP debates, uh, Fiorina and Christie both um, made, made known in front of the cameras that they believe that marijuana is a gateway drug. And so they um, <clears throat> advocate for its prohibition. But this is an empirical question. We can test this with science. We can test this with data. And it falls flat. You know, marijuana is not a gateway drug, according to evidence. Um, there are several reviews of the empirical literature from very uh, respected uh, researchers and bodies of scientists, including the National Academy of Sciences, um, the same thing uh, equivalent that goes on in Canada, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Uh, they've all reviewed the literature, and, and, and it's just not true that, gate, that marijuana is a gateway drug. So the probability of marijuana being used as a gateway into harder drugs is not statistically different from zero. So <clears throat> uh, most of the studies that find an association uh, between harder drugs and lower drugs are very weak methodologically. Uh, the, the claim that marijuana is a gateway drug is a causal claim. They're claiming that marijuana causes harder drug use. Uh, but that's, you know, uh, the burden of proof is very high, and as far as the scientific literature is concerned, has never been met. So um, <clears throat> the, the, marijuana, the marijuana gateway hypothesis is a myth. Uh, you still have to consider all the people who've used harder drugs before they've used marijuana. This exists, especially um, with the uptrend in prescription drug use. <clears throat> The next myth um, <clears throat> has to do with marijuana and its harms. So uh, when people talk about marijuana and its harms, they usually come to one extreme or the other. Uh, you know, some folks are um, adamant that marijuana is a very dangerous drug. Um, for example, Reagan and Bush one both said that they believe that marijuana is the most dangerous drug in the country, um, that it was more dangerous than, you know, heroin, cocaine. Um, this is obviously not true. Uh, marijuana is far less uh, harmful than, you know, methamphetamine. Um, <clears throat> and if you want to talk about harmful drugs, uh, the elephant in the room is alcohol. Uh, by far, the most harmful substance that we recreationally used is alcohol. Alcohol is more harmful in terms of orders of magnitude more harmful than all other drugs combined. So if we really want to reduce harm associated with pleasurable substances, we should be talking about alcohol, and I don't think we're going to be reinstating the Volstead Act anytime soon. We've seen what happened. Um, but on the other side, we, we often hear from advocates that marijuana is harmless. Now, if we, if, we ter if, we, if we frame that in terms of relatively speaking to other substances, it, it makes a little bit more sense. But, you know, marijuana is not a harmless substance. There, it, there are harms associated with it. Uh, it is a substance of potential abuse. It's not very healthy to inhale tar and toxins and carcinogens. Um, and the uh, um, sort of systemic crime associated with an illegal market. Um, 
But put into the context of other substances, legal or illegal, marijuana isn't very harmful. It's sort of kind of uh, on the lower end of the spectrum. <clears throat> Next, I want to talk about the drugs and crime nexus um, and subsequently the drugs and harm ne uh, nexus. We've all been told our entire lives that drugs cause crime, right? <clears throat> but simply, uh, kind of to simplify this, it's not necessarily the case that drugs are causing the crime. It's, they, have the, they have the ordering backwards. It's the case that criminals use drugs. You know, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who burgles and robs for a living who's going to be uh, very adamant against using marijuana. Um, so the underlying construct uh, that's causing both drug use and both crime is a, a, a propensity towards criminality. So crime and drugs... Um, there's a nexus there for three reasons. The first is pharmacological. When we're on substances, it alters our behavior. You know, so like when we get drunk, we tend to be a little bit loose with our inhibitions and we come, become more violent. Uh, when we come down from a, um, uh, when we're suffering through heroin withdrawal, you know, we get irritable and angry. Uh, so these things are associated with crime from a pharmacological reason. Um, but marijuana has sort of an opposite effect. Marijuana makes you passive. So as the old adage goes, it's better to have a calm stoner than an angry drunk. Uh, the, next the next way that um, <clears throat> drugs and crime are associated is instrumental, meaning that you know, uh, we've all heard that you know, drug addicts need money to feed their habit. Uh, this is pretty much exclusively um, <clears throat> related to harder, expensive drugs. Uh, it's very rare because marijuana is so cheap and so prevalent that someone will turn to crime to fund their marijuana habit. Uh, it's almost always heroin, cocaine, meth. Um, <clears throat> so it's very, very rare that you know, a marijuana addict will turn to crime to fund his substance. <clears throat> the bulk of all of the crime drug nexus comes from the fact that it's illegal and is controlled by gangs. Um, the illegal market explains the large majority of all crime associated with, um, <clears throat> with drugs. Um, <clears throat> and, but just sort of going back to the uh, um, uh, instrumental reason. Because, you know, even poor people can afford their marijuana. Marijuana is dirt cheap, right? You kind of have to not be able to afford your uh, vice for it to... Um, sort of cause criminal behavior. This is why, you know, our, our, the, the Wall Street bankers, you know, they don't turn to crime because they can afford their coke habit. Um, our soccer moms who are addicted to pain pills, you know, they can afford their addiction because they have insurance. Um, <clears throat> and this can sort of be extended, uh, the, the crime um, drug nexus can be extended to the uh, uh, crime or drug harm nexus because there's a lot of harms associated with drugs that aren't necessarily criminal. For example, um, you know, like mental illness or, or homelessness. You know, we see a, a correlation, tight correlation between homeless and uh, being homeless and uh, being an addict. Um, <clears throat> so the assumption goes that the drug use caused the homelessness. But instead, what's really going on is there's another underlying variable causing both the drug use, drug addiction, and the homelessness. Um, there's also been sort of a, a, a motivational syndrome. You know, that's been used as a non-criminal reason to pro, uh, prohibit marijuana because there's an association that lazy people smoke weed and that it was the weed that caused the laziness. 
But it's probably the other way around. You know, if we're, if we're making causal statements like that, we have to be able to, uh, number one, show that there's an association. We have to show that the time ordering is correct, and we have to rule out other rival explanations. Um, <clears throat> so far, the scientific evidence uh, hasn't been able to do that, to show causality between you know, like, uh, uh, drug use specifically and crime and harm. <clears throat> um, in terms of you know, like moderate marijuana recreational users. <clears throat> Another myth is that legalization, decriminalization, or even deprioritization leads to an increased drug use and increased crime. <clears throat> um, there's been sort of natural experiments throughout this country um, and throughout the world, and there's never been any statistical evidence to suggest that decriminalization, legalization, or even deprioritization has um, a meaningful impact on use and crime. Um, for example, you know, like, again, sky didn't fall in Colorado. Back in the 70s, there was a, a, a short period of time where 12 states decriminalized marijuana. Sky didn't fall. Sky didn't fall in the Netherlands. Sky didn't fall in Portugal. Sky didn't fall in Uruguay. Um, <clears throat> nowhere can you find anywhere in the empirical literature where uh, decriminalization, legalization, or deprioritization has occurred, and you see a massive increase in uh, drug use or crime. Now, what I mean by deprioritization is even if it, it, it stands on the books that crime or, or, or like uh, drugs like marijuana are criminal, law enforcement has a lot of, uh, has a lot of discretion. You know, they have a lot of discretion in how to enforce the law and do their job. Uh, so they can choose at the departmental level to deprioritize. Um, uh, marijuana enforcement. Uh, this has happened in several police departments across the country. Sky didn't fall. Um, even with hard drugs, you know, there's a, a, a recently in, in Massachusetts, police department said, you know, what, we're going to give our drug addicts amnesty. You come, you come into the police department, you hand us your drugs, you hand us your paraphernalia, we won't arrest you, instead we'll put you in drug treatment. <clears throat> um, sky didn't fall. So uh, a viable option for law enforcement is to deprioritize um, their uh, drug enforcement tactics. Sky won't fall. <clears throat> Another myth is that drug use and drug-related harm is on the rise. Um, not true. Long-term trends show that the uh, biggest potheads were the baby boomers when they were in college. <laughs> right on, my man. <laughs> um, so long-term trends show that drug use is kind of on the decline um, and sort of been stable for uh, many, many years. Now, there is variation between different types of drugs. For example, in recent years, there has been an increase in, in um, uh, prescription drug use. Uh, but as far as marijuana is concerned, this is sort of a marijuana event, you know, uh, long-term rates still are, uh, long-term use rates are still dropping. <clears throat> and talking about, you know, kids, and getting access to it. Uh, research shows that um, it's easier for kids to get drugs than alcohol and tobacco. So just a little comment on the whole kids thing. <clears throat> it also be, should be noted that <clears throat> decriminalizing marijuana doesn't approve of it or sort of tacitly accept it and say that people should be using it. Um, of course, when I talk about you know drug decriminalization with my mother, uh, she always liked to say, well, if we're going to decriminalize it, so, so I guess everybody should be using it then, right? Now, that's, that's an error of logic, a gross error of logic. Um, decriminalizing marijuana does not suggest that people should be doing it. We don't tell people, go smoke. 
Um, <clears throat> smoking is probably one of the worst recreational activities. You know, smoking tobacco is one of the worst recreational activities you could possibly do. Uh, no one's telling people to go smoke because it's legal. <clears throat> and the last sort of myth I want to uh, talk about um, has to deal with this, uh, uh, with addiction. You know, the word addiction gets thrown around a lot lately um, with a lot of careless abandon. Most people really don't understand addiction. Um, <clears throat> So when we say that a substance like marijuana or heroin is addictive, that's not entirely accurate. That's only half of the equation. Uh, addiction is a brain disease. It's not curable, but it is treatable. So according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, addiction is a brain disease. So to say that some certain substance or another is addictive is only half the story. I mean, we can get addicted to weird things because that's just the way our brain responded to that stimuli. We can get addicted to TV, tanning, porn, even eating toilet paper. Um, so there are a lot of weird addictions out there, but it's more accurate to say that marijuana is addictive to the degree you have a proclivity to addiction. And again, rates show that amongst um, all of our illicit and illicit substances, marijuana is probably the least addictive. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> also, uh, very, very uh, uh, similar to the, the addiction issues, the, the potency uh, um, issue, that there's this argument that because marijuana is becoming more potent and it's becoming more dangerous or more addictive, um, there's no evidence to suggest that's the case. Uh, we haven't seen any uh, evidence to suggest that uh, more potent marijuana leads to higher addiction or uh, changes behaviorally um, or any sort of other changes um, physiologically. Uh, so it is, it is true that marijuana is more potent, but at the same time it means that people are smoking less of it. Evidence suggests that, you know, it's, you know, 30 years ago, people would smoke an entire joint to get the high they want. Now they only smoke half. You know, so <clears throat> potency, the, the increased potency really isn't problematic, per se. Um, <clears throat> so these are just a number of myths that are commonly cited to justify marijuana uh, prohibition. But, you know, they're not, they're, there's kernels of truth um, there, but they're not entirely accurate. And as taxpayers, you know, we should expect and we should demand that our public policy be, you know, empirically based. It should be effective and it should be cost efficient. Um, <clears throat> when you survey the literature on marijuana uh, prohibition, the overarching conclusion is that marijuana prohibition does more harm than good. Um, <clears throat> and this is kind of weird from a criminal justice per uh, perspective because from, you know, criminal justice policy should be preventing and reducing crime but, as, it, but we find that there's a lot of criminal justice policies that are more criminogenic than deterrent and prophylactic. Uh, and marijuana prohibition is one of those uh, uh, areas. You know, there are several detrimental labeling effects. You know, we've talked about it's hard for people to get jobs, hard for people to get um, funding for their education, you know, a variety of things, housing, whatever. Um, but it also has negative effects on how the police and the community relate to each other. You know, it has very dramatic and detrimental uh, effects on the police-community relationship. We know that the police cannot effectively do their job without the cooperation and compliance with uh, the community. And when the police are um, aggressively enforcing smaller crimes like, you know, simple marijuana possession, while at the same time they're being victimized by serious crimes and not, and not being uh, served justice in that regard, it breaks down the, po uh, the, the police community relationship. So <clears throat> harsh enforcement against uh, these types of, of, of um, simple marijuana laws tends to hurt community police relations, um, and it decreases their perceived legitimacy. So, you know, if, if we want people to sort of obey police directives and obey the law, uh, the, 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 the police and the law need to be viewed as legitimate. 
And these types of uh, marijuana prohibition laws decrease perceived legitimacy. <clears throat> um, from an evidence-based perspective in terms of approaching marijuana um, and drugs in general, uh, the sort of supply side and use rate side has been court- sort of an epic failure. You know, the war on drugs has not produced the uh, intended results. So, you know, at a certain time, you kind of have to admit defeat and rethink your strategy. And the current strategy in the, in the empirical literature is one of harm reduction, not use reduction. Uh, we've tried use reduction, doesn't work, and again, you know, people like to... Um, people like to alter their consciousness. I mean, humans have been drinking beer before they eat bread. Uh, so <clears throat> taking a harm reduction approach would be a more evidence-based uh, uh, approach. <clears throat> and again, you have to think about the opportunity costs. Marijuana prohibition is estimated to cost taxpayers $7 billion a year. Uh, that money could be better spent. For example, we could give every sworn officer a $10,000 raise with that money. Uh, we spend over $10 billion um, housing Nonviolent drug offenders. Um, <clears throat> we don't house a whole lot of marijuana offenders, but harder drug offenders. Even though they're non- nonviolent, they still cost us $10 billion a year. Um, <clears throat> and think about the economic benefit. Um, should we, the $30 billion earned by cartels on marijuana, that should probably go to American businesses and, uh, <clears throat> and let the, the, you know, Uncle Sam get his you know, cut as well. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity costs associated with marijuana prohibition. <clears throat> Again, uh, the police, they, you know, they can use their discretion judiciously. And, you know, uh, regarding how this um, uh, proposed legislation will, will turn out, you know, <clears throat> the police can focus on the types of marijuana-related behaviors that are actually harmful, you know, like erratically driving, uh, flagrant uses, you know, like flagrantly uh, selling the substance, flagrantly using the substance in, in public. Um, but in terms of... <clears throat> In terms of people just sort of, you know, like enjoying themselves in the privacy of their home, there, there's really no rational empirical uh, reason that needs to be enforced. Um, <clears throat> so President Carter in 1977 said that the penalty for drug possession should not be more harmful to an individual than the use of the drug itself. And when it comes to marijuana, the evidence is, is it's, it's pretty clear that this is what's happening, that the um, uh, penalties, the sanctions for drug possession for marijuana are much more harmful to the individual than the use of the drug itself. Um, So in closing, there's no empirical justification for making criminals out of otherwise law-abiding pot smokers. So that's all I had to say. Boise State University criminal justice professor Cody Jorgensen. That was uh, Tuesday night. We were there at the Boise State University Student Union Jordan Ballroom, and it was great. I felt I almost felt like I had home field advantage going back to my alma mater, speaking to a hundred in the audience and another eight thousand uh, on the live stream. One of my favorite moments. Those speeches are available on my SoundCloud page. Uh, if you want to download or embed them, pass them on, share them through your social networks. Just find me. Radical Russ everywhere. SoundCloud.com slash Radical Russ. We're back with Leap Speaker John Amibale <laughs> right after this. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Great. 
Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com, where we don't change our mind on decriminalization during an election year. Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around. Listen in as medical marijuana pioneer Dr. Dina shares never-before-heard stories, chats with cannabis insiders and celebrity friends, and provides invaluable perspective and insight into one of the fastest-growing industries in the world. I want to share with you what was once confidential information. Let's expose the truth, discuss the issues, and learn the facts. Cannabis Confidential, only on CannabisRadio.com. Imagine life without taxes. Let New Era Certified Public Accountants, NewEraCPAs.com, handle your Cannabis 280E and tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPAs Cannabis Finance Bootcamp. NewEraCPAs.com, with years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. One of the most disturbing elements of the Prohibition War is how it's made police the enemy of otherwise law-abiding cannabis consumers. Fortunately, one group of police officers knows the futility of Prohibition reaches out to educate the community and current law enforcement. Today, the Russ Belleville Show visits with another speaker from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition with one clear message. Cops say legalize drugs. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, even though the segment's called Cops Say Legalize Drugs, it goes to the entire realm of the criminal justice system. And today we visit with the former Assistant Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, John Amabile. And I'm not I'm sorry. It's, it's John Amabile. Amabile. Thank you so much. I felt terrible <laughs> about that. So I, I, I came up with about four different ways I could say that, and I didn't even come close. So <laughs> thank you so much. John Amabile is I'm with us. I'm used to that from the time I was a kid. Oh, so I'm sure. No problem. I'm sure. Uh, my last name's Belleville, so I get Bellevue all the time. So. I feel you. Uh, so, John, uh, former assistant attorney general of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, eight, 1982 to 1986, also served uh, in the criminal bureau here. Uh, so you've been through hundreds, thousands of cases that you covered in the drug war, and it taught you that what? We need to legalize drugs. How, it, how taught did this- me, it taught me that criminal regulation is an abysmal failure as a policy, and it's 
completely unworkable. It's a total catastrophe. And the criminal policy, the criminal laws, kill more people than the drugs. That's what it taught me. Mm. So that we need to end drug prohibition and legalize and regulate drugs as a public health issue, not as a criminal moral issue. And that's remarkable to me, given the the time and location of when you were the assistant attorney general, uh, the mid 80s, Massachusetts, uh, Tip O'Neill's the speaker of the House. The drug war is, you know, ramping up faster and stronger and harder than it ever had. Some of the stuff that was passed then is what we're still suffering from now with our mass incarceration and such. Uh, What was the political atmosphere like and, and how tough was it? to do your job and see the futility of it day after day? Oh, it was incredibly frustrating. and It was obvious right from the get-go. This was the Say No to Drugs era, which was a complete propaganda campaign. And it it resulted in this implementation of all of these mandatory sentencing laws, a prison-building frenzy, and the result is that we've gone from a prison population in 1970 when Tricky Dick <clears throat> Nixon declared war on drugs. We had 450,000 people in prison, 36,000 on drug charges. Now we have over 2 million people in prison. We have over 500,000 in prison on drug charges. And drugs are cheaper, stronger, and more available than they ever were before. Right now, we have this whole opioid crisis, so-called. And what people don't see is that all of the bad things related to this are a direct result of criminal regulation. There would be no overdoses if heroin addicts had access to a regulated product. There'd be no overdoses. But instead, you have the black market and the gangsters running uh, the drug uh, operations. Nobody knows what they're getting. And we have this crisis of overdose deaths. There'd be none of that if you could get a regulated dose. And it was treated as a public health issue, not as a moral criminal issue. But the fact of the matter is now that all of these suburban communities are being affected by this opium situation, people are starting to wake up. You know, it started with pot legalization, which in Massachusetts is coming down the pipe just like Colorado, and brick by brick, we're finally starting to push back against this completely idiotic policy, flawed policy, failed policy, and we're starting to get to a point where people are starting to look at solutions that don't include uh, slapping handcuffs on people and uh, taking them to jail for things that we don't really even have a consensus of what's wrong with drugs. Mm. And, and, you know, you, you kind of alluded to it in that response in how now that there's a opiate overdose affecting the people in the suburbs, it's getting a little more attention, but this really isn't news. A lot of this drug war blight isn't news to people living uh, in urban communities, in African-American and Latino no. communities. Absolutely. I mean, the war on drugs has been one of the most racist implementations of criminal law 
uh, in, in uh, the history of the country. The statistics are undeniable. The war on drugs is a war against poor people and against people of color in a grotesquely disproportionate manner. And of course, one of the main things about it is one of the main things about this failed policy, one of its main, forget the fact that there's tens of thousands of homicides committed uh, in order to supply the illegal drugs. The, the Mexican drug cartels have murdered 50,000 people in the last three or four years. Forget that. The war on drugs has completely undermined respect for the rule of law. You have a situation where over 100 million people in the United States have admitted breaking these laws. And when you have that kind of rampant uh, violation of the laws, the respect for the law goes right out the window. And these are not fringe elements. The last three presidential campaigns have started off with the president, the person who got elected, making drug disclaimers. Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all put that out there so they wouldn't get caught with the gotcha moment during the middle of the campaign. And what does that teach children? That the presidents have broken these laws. Well, how do you have these laws? How do you, uh, how do you foster respect for the rule of law in that situation? You can't. And that's one of the biggest uh, side effects, horrible side effects of this completely flawed and failed policy. We're speaking with John Amabile. He's a former assistant attorney general in Massachusetts and uh, currently practicing uh, law in Massachusetts in Brockton. And uh, are you snowed in, by the way? Has that uh, uh, reduced? A no, little? I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually on a ferry boat out to Martha's Vineyard right now. Oh, how very nice. <laughs> very nice. Well, you know, we've we've talked about how the war on drugs affects people uh, in the communities, in particular neighborhoods. Now let's take it to the macro level in how this affects our entire foreign policy, uh, at least for sure on this hemisphere, but globally. Oh, a absolutely. I mean, we, we, the consumption of drugs by U.S. consumers has ruined num a number of uh, governments in, in this hemisphere. Colombia, which supplies most of the uh, cocaine, has been converted into a narco-terrorist state, and that's all a direct result of consumption by U.S. consumers. And the same thing, of course, is now happening in Mexico. Mexico is now the biggest uh, transit depot for the illegal drugs, and it's caused a, the creation of these horrendous drug cartels who uh, protect their operations, these multi-billion dollar operations with, uh, with extreme violence. And the same thing is happening in Mexico that happened in Colombia. The prime minister of the Bahamas was dealing coke. There was a, there's lots of evidence that uh, the Cuban government was complicit. So look at Manuel Noriega who went down and arrested him and put him in jail, the president of Panama. It's a disaster. And it's the U.S. that has led the world into drug prohibition. 
And other countries around the world are starting to see that it's a total failure and that following the U.S. on this is a, has been a uh, colossal uh, negative thing for these other countries. And they're finally starting to move in the direction of looking for alternatives. And fortunately, here in the U.S., there's some light at the end of the tunnel. It's brick by brick, but the ideas of serious reform, which is unthinkable even five or ten years ago, are starting to emerge and be debated. And once that happens, the mushroom, the snowballing effect is going to happen, and we're going to have some real reform. This is a horrible policy, and it's a very important thing to correct if we're going to uh, solve a lot of our social ills. Yeah, the we, fact of the matter is that if you treated it as a health issue and you regulated it carefully but allowed adults to have access, you provided treatment, you provided education, you could have a far more profound impact on drug abuse than we're having now, having it in the closet and letting gangsters uh, control the uh the, the market of, uh, of these products. You know, uh, we opened the discussion by your mentioning that the drug war has been an abysmal failure, but I often think with the right perspective, the drug war has been a, an astonishing success. Uh, if I'm a shareholder in a private prison company, a drug tester or a rehab, this has been really helpful to my bottom line. Can you address the money angle of this and, and how we can fight prohibition when there's so much profit to be made from it? Well, of course, like anything else, when you build up these bureaucracies, these prosecutors' offices, police departments, put all of these resources into this area, then it does create a vested interest in perpetrating this hell policy, and you're absolutely correct. We build prisons on a frenzied basis to house 2 million people, which is a significant percentage of the population. But people are waking up, and part of it is a fiscal issue. Even states like Texas, conservative states, have realized we cannot incarcerate our way out of these problems. We can't afford it. And we're finally waking up to the idea that it is an international embarrassment for us, the United States, the land of the free, to be the have the highest prison rate, the biggest prison population in the entire world. We have more people in prison in China, which is a totalitarian regime with three times as many people as us. <laughs> and if you compare the prison populations to European countries and other so-called developed countries, we have like five to ten times more people per capita in prison in these other countries. And this is a complete embarrassment. We're the land of the free. We're the land of the incarcerated. And that is not what this country is built, the principles were built upon. It's exactly the opposite. So we have to fight against it. But when you talk about things like treatment and rehabilitation, we should be putting money into that and not into incarcerating and prosecuting people. There's no doubt that some of these products are addictive and unhealthy. It's simply the orientation of treating them as a criminal moral issue is a complete unmitigated failure 
just like attempting to treat alcohol was during prohibition. And the same would be true if we tried to treat tobacco in that way. Mm. All we would do is create a huge black market and uh, a gangster uh, uh, fueled uh, supply network, and it would not work. So what you do is what the same thing you do with tobacco. You educate people, you regulate it, you regulate the marketing of the product. You don't deny people access to it, but you seriously regulate these products as a public health issue. And that's the effective way to reduce abuse of these products. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, John Amabile, the former assistant attorney general uh, currently in Brockton, Mass. And on that ferry to Martha's Vineyard, sounds like you're just about to arrive. So thanks for joining us and taking the time to talk to our audience. Listen, thank you very much for having me on because I really think this is an incredibly important issue. And I hope everybody does whatever they can to end this horribly flawed and and, uh, and uh, destructive policy. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Well, with four states with tax and regulate and the District of Columbia. The state of cannabis. Oh, my God, it's refreshing. We have people that generally wouldn't speak on behalf of cannabis for fear of retribution, fear of losing your practices, fear of of many of those things, and and find ourselves in in a a place that we finally can. Bringing you fact-based news and views and keeping listeners on the pulse of what's happening in the industry today. The State of Cannabis. On demand anytime, only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. All right, welcome back, everybody. Just time for a quick wrap-up of the show and a reminder on tomorrow's show, joining us for the last half hour of Hour 1, Mark and Jody Emery. I think, and Jody, but I'm, I'm no for sure Mark. <laughs> I think we're getting both of them. But anyway, at least Mark Emery will be on the show tomorrow. We'll have a great discussion. And then uh, at 4 o'clock, we've got a call-in guest. Kevin P. Saunders will be joining us. For eight interrupted minutes in which he can tell us all how bad the Sean Parker initiative is, 
and why we should support something else. So that'll be fun. Tune in for that. <laughs> That's all the time we got for this first hour. Stay tuned for hour two. We'll do our drug war data mining behind the headlines and radical rant coming up in the next hour. For everyone here at CannabisRadio.com and Roller J Studios, I'm Radical Russ. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Now it's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Where you can toke. I am here. Or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can toke and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Portland, Oregon at Roller J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the snoopy, snoopy poop dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of Gonta Graphics, the sultan of Sativa Statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back, everybody. It's hour two. Time for Toker Talk Radio, where we're not going to take your calls today. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to take calls today, because i got to do other segments, because I played that professor's speech in the first half hour. So, uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the talking. Besides, tomorrow we've got Kevin P. Saunders calling in. He is a proponent, I believe a proponent of MCLR, who's going to have eight uninterrupted minutes to convince y'all that I am wrong about my support for the Sean Parker Initiative and that instead you should vote against that and you should instead vote for true legalization with MCLR. Or maybe it's CCHI or maybe it's one of the other five. I, I don't know, but... Whatever it is, it's not Sean Parker, not the one that already has over a million dollars behind it and the support of the lieutenant governor and, you know, two major drug reform organizations and legalizes pretty much what Oregon, Washington, Colorado and Alaska have legalized, except in the ways that it's better. Forget that. Vote against that and pick something that's not funded. But anyway, you'll you'll get to hear from him. I I. Shouldn't put words in his mouth, right? You'll hear from him tomorrow at four. Eight uninterrupted minutes of 
true legalization coming at you on tomorrow's show. And that follows our extended interview tomorrow with Mark Emery and hopefully also Jody Emery uh, on the show. We'll have plenty to discuss, probably in that same perspective of true legalization. Mark's got some pretty strong opinions on it. And uh, also uh, wanted to thank everybody who was uh, reaching out to me on my last couple of articles from my trip to Idaho on Tuesday, where I got a, a fun welcome from the Bureau of Probation and Parole, I believe it is, BP or BPP or MPP or OPP, you know me, I'm not sure who it was, but they pounded on my hotel door, motel door at uh, 1130 at night. And uh, you can read all about that at MarijuanaPolitics.com. Look for the articles with the chickens on them, which by the way, a chicken can be a hen or a rooster. Somebody wrote to me and said, oh, you used a picture of a rooster. Well, yes, a rooster is a chicken, just like a man is a human. Okay, so chicken and hen rooster. Anyway, and uh, quick note, also Oregon News, apparently they're uh, storming and breaking up the whole protest out there. The Bundy Ranch, the Yalcada, the Vanilla Isis, they're busting them all up up there. We already had the the traffic stop that resulted in the shooting that killed one of the occupiers and wounded some other. But uh, now apparently they're they're storming into the place. And uh, Wiz Coleco is on my chat on another private chat with me. And he's saying there's a rumor that the uh, the Bundy occupiers there were smoking pot, <clears throat> smoking pot out there in the uh, middle of the Malher Wildlife Refuge that they had stormed and taken over in protest of the federal government, daring them, daring to prosecute people who burned public lands and taxes and government's bad or something. Anyway, um, if they were, it was one of the few legal things they were doing. (laughs) It is legal to smoke pot in Oregon. I got nothing. These occupiers wanted to smoke some pot. Good on you. Just jays. Well, not legal in a federal building. Legal in the state of Oregon, but not legal in a federal building. So let's be clear about that. Raw story reporting that a few militant stragglers remain. I got in a discussion with someone else who was talking about how sad it was now. In the traffic uh, stop, they arrested most of the leaders of the thing. So the only people left are kind of these followers who, comparatively speaking, relatively and absolutely speaking, not the brightest members of the occupation. So... Oh, it's a special kind of thing living out west sometimes. When we come back, we've got some drug war data mining, a great poll from the District of Columbia on marijuana legalization and buying and selling marijuana. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hurry, its temperature is shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's orders. Less heat, (laughs) more flavor. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. I said, on this program, what do they want? My grandchildren and the monster. Oh, did I scare you? Okay, maybe you're high, too.
ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the host of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing Cannabis Radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. Imagine life without taxes. Let New Era Certified Public Accountants, NewEraCPAs.com, handle your Cannabis 280E in tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPAs Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. NewEraCPAs.com, with years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. All right, in the drug war data mine today, we take a look at a report from the Washington City paper. That would be Washington, D.C., and it's the D.C. poll. D.C. residents uh, were recently polled by D.C. Vote and the Washington City paper and found that 66% agreed that the mayor of Washington, D.C. should try to find a way to allow the city to tax and regulate marijuana like it does alcohol. The question was, although marijuana is legal to possess in the district, and remember, Washington, D.C. Legal, legalized two ounces of marijuana. You can have two ounces on hand. Although marijuana is legal to possess in the district, Congress has blocked the district government from allowing marijuana to be taxed and regulated like alcohol. If a legal method were available for the mayor to allow marijuana to be taxed and regulated like alcohol, despite the congressional ban, should the mayor pursue it or not? 66% yes, 25% no. So we got two-thirds of D.C. residents saying, yes, if it's legal, we should be able to buy and sell it. We should be able to tax and regulate it. Another question asked, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? When Congress blocks a successful D.C. ballot initiative or referendum that has been approved by the voters, D.C.'s elected officials should use all legal means to implement the measure anyway. 79% agreed. Nearly four out of five said, if the federal government interferes with Washington, D.C.'s home rule, Washington, D.C. should use all legal means to fight back. And this is a long-running theme. You know, Washington, D.C. has more population, and I think I'm remembering this correctly, than four states I know it's got more population than, than Wyoming, right? But I think Washington, D.C. is more populous than four U.S. states. It's, it certainly deserves better rep representation. And uh, being this, you know, beholden to the whims of Congress uh, basically means these people are taxed without representation. And that's, in fact, the, the motto on their, on their license plates in the district, taxation without representation. 
So there was another question. And another question about Washington, D.C. is where can you smoke pot? Because public use, like all the legal states, is prohibited. No public display of marijuana. So they asked the question. As you may know, D.C. residents voted to legalize adult marijuana use. But some landlords prohibit renters from using marijuana in their home. And renters who use marijuana can be evicted. Some district lawmakers have called for the creation of regulated places where adults can consume marijuana without fear of arrest or eviction. Would you support or oppose a law creating regulated places where adults can legally consume marijuana? 61% support. So over three in five district residents say there ought to be pot clubs. There ought to be some place an adult can smoke pot. And, And really... If we're giving people a right to smoke pot, and that's what the right to possess is, come on. It's not just so you can have it, obviously. It's so that you can use it. If we have the right to use pot, but we don't provide a legal place to enjoy that right, what good is the right? It reminds me of when you pass the 15th Amendment and black people have the right to vote. But then you make a whole bunch of poll taxes and literacy tests to make sure they can't. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have the right to possess marijuana and smoke it so long as you own your own home. And that can't be right. There were more questions uh, on the D.C. poll. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? Since Congress has blocked the district government from taxing and regulating marijuana, Marijuana legalization is just another reason why Washington, D.C. should become its own state. 63% agreed with that statement. So uh, marijuana legalization, this is not just a fringe issue. This is something that district voters just add to another long list of complaints of how Congress interferes with their ability to regulate themselves and why Washington, D.C. should become another state. There were some more uh, marijuana questions. Uh, The next question, although possession of personal amounts of marijuana was legalized by DC voters in 2014, people caught people in DC caught with small amounts of other illegal drugs for personal use are arrested and incarcerated, even for a first offense. In your view, are these drug possession laws too harsh, too lenient, or just right? 60% say that personal drug possession laws that involve arrest and incarceration for a first offense are too harsh. 60%. Again, three in five district residents who think for any drug, if you've got a personal amount on you, why are we bothering to arrest and incarcerate you? So this is good news as we uh, look through Washington, D.C. and other uh, other moves that it is making to try to join the rest of the country uh, in, in the other states, I should say, that are legalizing marijuana. Currently, their grow and give system allows people to be able to grow their own marijuana at home and possess up to two ounces of it and freely give it to one another. And I wonder if the Congress that is so opposed to this doesn't understand how they are unintentionally helping to foster what they hate. 
even among these people that are anti-marijuana, a lot of times they will even concede, we, we're we not against the person who's just smoking a joint on their own time in private. That's not, we want to get those dealers. We want to get those guys that are selling the marijuana. That, that, you know, the drug dealers, the big bad drug dealers. But even by that measure, what they're doing is completely counterproductive. When Washington, D.C. legalizes the possession and the cultivation and free sharing, quote unquote, of marijuana, it just became miles easier to be an illegal marijuana grower who sells weed. You can possess it. You can run around possessing it. Used to be if you were holding enough marijuana, that could be possession with intent to deliver and you could get busted. But now... You can hold up to two ounces of it. Now you've got a whole customer base that's that once they've gotten the marijuana in their hand, isn't afraid of being busted. Nothing you can use against them to get them to roll over and snitch on who sold it to them. The whole world of underground marijuana dealing just became a whole lot easier and less risky. You, It's actually a better market for the, person selling bags. This is the the folly of decriminalization wherever it's tried. Decriminalization being the idea of let's not punish the possessor, the small-time user. We'll just give them a slap on the wrist, if anything. And and of course Washington DCs would be the, you know, the greatest decriminalization you could possibly have, that is it's legal to possess and to grow and to share. But without legalizing the market to go with it, you've just now made a whole new, much emboldened customer base for the current illegal dealers. So by continuing to block D.C.'s attempts to tax and regulate the buying and selling of marijuana, you continue to allow the buying and selling of marijuana to be conducted by the criminal element that raises no money for the district that you want to be self-sufficient, I would presume. Another interesting side note in the poll, uh, and this is uh, has nothing to do with uh, marijuana, but it asks the question as to whether or not the mascot name for the Washington football team, which is a dictionary-defined de- dictionary racial slur, do they consider that racial slur to be offensive? These are residents of Washington, D.C., for whom that racially slur football team plays. Their fans, 58% found it offensive. 58% of the people in Washington, D.C. consider the Washington, D.C. NFL team's name offensive. Remarkable, huh? All right, we're going to uh, be taking a break here at 20 after and a reminder here. That uh, on tomorrow's show, half past in the first hour, we're going to be talking with Mark Emery and hopefully also Jody Emery from Vancouver, British Columbia, the cannabis culture headquarters and pot TV and all that. We'll also have a eight minute segment featuring Kevin Saunders, a follower of mine on Facebook who thinks I'm completely wrong about supporting the Sean Parker initiative. And I've agreed to let him speak for eight minutes uninterrupted on why we should oppose the Sean Parker initiative. And then if necessary afterwards, I'll, I'll debunk whatever 
falsehoods might have come across. And, and I, if it, going by his posts, man, <laughs> if, if he's going to bring the stuff that he's been posting on Facebook, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty, pretty entertaining. So stick around for that. And this, of course, is our penultimate show from Rolla J Studios here in beautiful Legal Potland, Oregon. Uh, I'm looking around at an empty studio, nothing on the walls, boxes full of equipment and packing stuff and all the gear, getting ready to put that into a storage unit over the weekend. That's how I'll be spending my 48th birthday on Sunday. That's right. I turned 48 on Sunday. And uh, I don't know, I guess that's a good age. Good thing I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, washing walls and <laughs> cleaning toilets and uh, mopping floors uh, for my birthday and um, watching the Pro Bowl, I suppose. Should be a good time. From then, we're going on the road, folks. It's going to be fun. Well, what the hell are we supposed to do, you moron? Yeah, we're heading on, heading on the road. Um... I will be in San Francisco on Valentine's weekend. Not going to make it to the Cannabis Cup next weekend. The uh, Sean Parker people wanted to have a Californian defending them, and I understand that, so they couldn't raise the expenses for me. So we'll see you in San Francisco for the International Cannabis Business Conference. Check them out at internationalcbc.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. This is Dan Michaels from danmichaelsaudio.com, and you're listening to Radical Russ on cannabisradio.com. Midnight, July 1st, 2015, adult marijuana prohibition came to an end in Oregon. Immediately, over 400,000 adults who consumed cannabis responsibly were no longer criminals. This is what freedom sounds like. Brought to you by Portland Oil. The Fingerboard Extension has fretted instruments to enhance your creativity. It has new and used guitars and banjos from beginning to high class. The Fingerboard Extension has National Resophonic, Hassan Dalton, Larrabee, Heritage and Recording King guitars, and Mike Ramsey, Wildwood, Gold Tone, and Recording King banjos. The Fingerboard Extension also has drum stuff, used gear, and parts. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension, downtown Corvallis, Oregon, at 120 Northwest 2nd, or check out the inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com and reverb.com. We 
must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make them. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. One major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical Rant. Well, the push is on by the supporters of marijuana prohibition. They know 2016 is their Waterloo with five states potentially voting on legalization. And now we know for sure Florida will once again be voting on medical marijuana. Nevada's already on the ballot for legalization. And we've got entries for medical in Ohio and Missouri that have good shots and possibly legalization via a legislature in Vermont and another initiative try, a couple, two, three of them, I think, in Michigan. So 2016, it's all happening. And if there's going to be any chance for them to get pushback, to slow the momentum, this is the year it's going to have to happen. So we here at Cannabis Radio will be covering all of this reefer madness as it develops throughout 2016. And the latest one comes from an Associated Press piece. I've seen it also picked up on ABC News already. And that's about how Colorado legalized weed. Now all these illegal drug dealers are growing weed amongst all the legal weed and they're supplying it out of state. It opens up uh, talking about a skydiving business that put Colorado pot in their planes and flew it to Minnesota, a uh, Denver man who filled 100 pot-filled FedEx packages for Buffalo, New York, 20 other drug traffickers from uh, Cuba relocating to Colorado, growing marijuana to send to Florida where it gets twice the return, and so forth. And it frames this as being something that can be helpful to the Supreme Court lawsuit of Nebraska and Oklahoma, who say that Colorado's pot legalization should be unconstitutional because it sends a tide of illicit weed across their borders. The Obama administration asked the Supreme Court not to hear the case because the fact that weed gets out of Colorado is not Colorado's fault. But this is going to be one of the big pushes is that, see, you legalized in Colorado, and now all these drug dealers that want to get their weed other places... Why, all they got to do is be in Colorado, set up shop, and then they can sell it and, and traffic it and get it out of state as easily as they want. By gum, we want to keep weed illegal here in Florida. But then people go to Colorado and then they send it to Florida and gosh darn it, we can't keep it illegal. And that's just making us so angry because we want to keep something prohibited in this state. And these other states, my God, why they have this more liberal policies and it we can't we can't keep the, the pot out. Well, we can try as hard as we want to keep the pot out, and it's not going to work because these other states have such liberal policies on it that it can't help but get out because there's a demand for pot here in Florida or Idaho or Nebraska or wherever the hell. People here keep wanting it, and, well, they can get a lot more money for it here because it's illegal here. It's harder to get here, and they can go to Colorado and get it real easy. Then they bring it over to our state and they, you know, they just sell it and make a whole lot of money. Folks, think about that entire scenario I just laid out to you, except change Colorado and weed to Virginia and guns or Texas and guns. And again, I don't want to 
be on the one side or the other of the gun debate, but I'm just trying to make the point that if there's people out there who make the claim in these conservative states that, by God, we want to prohibit weed, and you got have these liberal policies on weed, easy access to weed that prevents us from prohibiting weed, then that same logic's got to work for guns. You have a place like Washington, D.C. or California that wants to try to ban guns or certain types of them. And then you got states like Texas or Virginia that has more liberal policies on it. And people can make money by exploiting that difference in policy. And there's no stopping it from coming from, you know, Chicago and Indiana. Same deal there, right? Chicago wants to have a more strict gun policy, but they can't maintain it because Indiana's got such liberal laws. So how about we come to a compromise? The We could call it the redneck hippie compromise of 2016 <laughs> or the, or the, uh, the stoner Patriot act <laughs> stoner slash Patriot act. Right. And I mean, Patriot in like us Patriots, not like the, the spying law. Right. The Stoner Tea Party Act, whatever you want to call it, okay? And what it will say is that we recognize that there has to be a national level of regulation on both weed and guns. We have to recognize that what we've done in this country with respect to both of those consumer goods that there is an unquenchable demand for in both cases, trying to regulate them state by state has been fruitless. And that in both cases, we need to have some national level standards so that everyone can share the same sort of right from state to state to state. Marijuana is safer than guns. I can see the new tagline. We can have new sets of bumper stickers. Marijuana is safer than guns. Whatever law there is for how well we can possess guns, that ought to be the law for weed, right? Like if you're in an open carry state and you can have, you know, 30 round magazines and that kind of stuff, then you ought to be able to grow a a two dozen plant garden and possess a half pound at any time, (laughs) right? Marijuana is safer than guns. What, you're going to let me tote around an AK-47 with a magazine over my shoulder in public and I can't have a half pound of weed, (laughs) right? Conversely, if we're going to be in a Chicago where you can't have a handgun, you can't have this or that, then okay, then you can't have weed either, right? I, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. It's just something that vexes me that there seems to be this inconsistency in how we evaluate the situations, right? It's like, are we going to be states' rights or not? Are we going to be federals, federalists or not? You know, whichever way we're going to pick, let's pick and then, you know, move on. But it's, uh, it's, it's strange to me. Now, of course, you know, people will bring up, uh, Russ, guns are in the Constitution. Guns and the right to bear arms is in the Second Amendment. Yes, I know. I read the thing. And I happen to know that the drafts of it were written on hemp paper by hemp farmers who traded seeds for psychoactive strains of cannabis. So, yeah, guns are like written into the Constitution in the amendments, by the way. They weren't in the first part, right? But the drafters of the document and the 
paper it was written on itself are weed. So I think we got a constitutional right to weed. And I don't say that lightly. I say that based on the Ninth Amendment. I think we have a Ninth Amendment right to smoke weed. The enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights is not meant to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That is to say, the, the people have some rights. We didn't write them all down. Just because just the Constitution wrote a bunch of rights down doesn't mean that's all the rights. You gotta have, we got to have some other natural inalienable rights. And I think if you're a country founded by hemp farmers in an agrarian society, then farming has to be one of those natural rights. It has to be. I can't see how it would not be a natural right among those people. So, yeah, we've got a constitutional right to smoke pot. And if we can recognize that, it's a personal constitutional right to be able to farm and use the products that you farm, whether it's pot or not. Everybody's got a right to plant seeds and sow crops. That's my belief. And if we were to recognize that, like we've recognized an individual right to bear arms, then we wouldn't have these silly disputes. The, the problem that we've got, if there's a problem here for these states, isn't Colorado's legalization, it's their prohibition. When Florida wants to bitch about, oh, these, these dealers from Cuba went to Colorado and set up shop, and then they, they sent all this weed to Florida, what motivated them to do that? What motivated them to go to all that effort? The profit they could make. If those guys are pissing you off, the, the reason it should piss you off is not because you can't stop them. It's because you're not making a cut on it. Inga Frickland, uh, the leap speaker that I spoke with uh, in uh, Boise on Tuesday, had a great line where she said, cats like catnip. Cats are just wired to like catnip. Other species don't like catnip. It's no big deal to them, but cats and catnip are wired for each other. And similarly, humans like to alter their perceptions. You wouldn't try to prohibit cats and catnip, right? You just recognize it is, right? And the same with humans. We like to alter our consciousness. Always have. We were drinking beer before we were making bread. The first thing we figured out how to do with wheat was beer, not bread. We've always tried to, it's a natural part of being human. Not all humans do it, at least with chemicals, but almost all humans do it with something. They find a way to alter their perceptions, to alter their mood. Some of them do it through extreme exercise. Some of them like to gamble. Some like, you know, uh, uh, watching soap operas, whatever it might be. Everybody's got a little of it in them. It's natural. And it will cause problems for some. Just like some people will overexercise. Some people will eat too much. Some people will be too promiscuous and risky. And we got to try to find a way to minimize the damage from those things, certainly. But what we don't do is add more damage to it by making it a crime that it isn't. By adding a criminal justice layer that doesn't need to be there. 
We should use our criminal justice system to stop us from harming others, not what we do to ourselves. And if you believe in freedom, you have to believe in the freedom to make bad decisions too. We can't be a society that forces people to have to do good because then you don't know that they're doing good, whether they're doing good or just complying. And then the next time you're not paying attention to them, will they continue to comply? No, freedom means we have to accept that people make different choices. And some of those choices are bad choices. Some of those choices may be choices we don't like. But if you don't tolerate alternative lifestyles and tolerate people's choices, to the extent that you can minimize the damage they cause others, then you just have to build more prisons. And that's what we've learned in the past 35 years in the United States. That's how we've accomplished getting the largest prison population in human history. Not just not just per capita, not just overall numbers, not just modern times. We are the prison country, the prison empire of all recorded human history. That's what we've learned from our intolerance and our ignorance and our inability to inability to recognize reality of who we are and what we are. All right, we're going to be back with some behind the headlines and a look at religious use after this. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. The Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com, the national wildlife refuge for marijuana unicorns. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Imagine life without taxes. Let New Era Certified Public Accountants, NewEraCPAs.com, handle your Cannabis 280E in tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPAs Cannabis Finance Bootcamp. NewEraCPAs.com, with years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. 
Today in the Cannabis Focus, we're taking a look at the lawsuit that has been filed by the Oklavu Native American Church. Uh, the person filing the the uh, suit is Joy Graves, who's an adherent of the church out here in Oregon. And the lawsuit is concerning the church or church members trying to send ounces of marijuana through the U.S. Postal Service to another church member in the state of Ohio. Now, the church member in the state of Ohio, it is claimed, has cancer and that the the sending of the cannabis was the sending of sacramental herb used in native ancient Native American healing practices and that the U.S. government stopping them from using the mail to send ounces of weed to Ohio amounts to an unconstitutional infringement of their First Amendment rights to practice their religion free from government interference, as codified also by the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act signed by President Clinton. All right, so there's the facts. That's the that's the setup on this. Now you got to start thinking about some of the particulars. The first thing is just the practical aspect of it, right? This is somebody asking the federal government to have the right to be able to send weed in the mail to a state where it's not legal from a state where sending it outside the state is illegal and where sending it across state lines is illegal, but that they should have the right to be able to do that because they believe that it's a holy herb. Okay, so naturally, if this case were to go their way, it would mean that people who believe herb is holy could then mail it anywhere. And presumably the people who receive it would be free from any sort of prosecution. If you won a lawsuit like this and went to the Supreme Court and it was upheld, you'd basically uphold the right of anyone who believes herb to be holy to be able to you know, grow it and possess it and mail it to anyone they want who also believes that it's holy. Now, this would be awesome if it passed, wouldn't it? If this got through the courts, wouldn't this just be awesome? Holy people could send holy herb back and forth all across the country as much as they wanted to. Now, of course, it does bring into question what is it that proves that you think herb is holy? Well, there's all sorts of tests there, isn't it? How, how do you know that I'm legit? How do you know that I'm just some guy who wants to, you know, send weed to people that I don't really believe weed's holy. I'm just going to say that it's holy. I'm just going to fake it. I'm going to say weed's holy. And then I'm going to send weed to people in Ohio and, and they'll, they'll say it's holy too. How, how do we prove whether or not they actually find it to be holy. In fact, there's so many people out there that like weed and would love to be able to send it to their friends back and forth across the country. Don't you think like almost everybody would claim that they think herb is holy? So how, how would we prove it? Well, maybe you'd have to be a member of this church, this Oklahoma church. You'd have to be a member of it. And maybe, you know, in order to join that church, I don't know what there's a, is there an application fee? 
Is there a cost to it? Is there a, do- a requested donation? I mean, in other words, if the court decided this way, that yeah, so, you know, sending weed across country using the mail is perfectly cool as long as you're holy, but the only way we can tell you're holy is if you're a member of this particular church. Boy, that would be a, a real financial benefit for that particular church, wouldn't it? You'd have a lot of people wanting to join that church, wouldn't you? And and, and for many of them, they wouldn't really give a shit about whether herbs holy or there's a spirit or yeah, yeah, sure, it's holy. There's a spirit. Here's your fifty bucks. Is is that what you want your religion to become? Some sort of whore for people that want to use it to be able to trade herb across the country. I mean, that's one aspect of the whole religious church thing that just bothers me. And the other aspect is, is if that is the litmus test for me to avoid being prosecuted for my use of herb, how is that not government respecting an establishment of religion? If the government maintains there's a particular penalty for a particular act, but that penalty does not apply to people who belong to a particular church, how is that not violating the First Amendment? How, how is that not giving a special right based on one's re- religious affiliation? What if uh, only Amish people were allowed to rob? <laughs> if you're Amish, you can steal. It's okay. If you're Amish, you can steal. That'll be fine. We'll let that crime go. We'll punish everybody else unless they're Amish. I can bet that a lot of thieves would start having funny little beards and suspenders and black hats, right? That's my that's one of my problems with this. And and they they refer back to this Religious Freedom Restoration Act and there's a couple of cases that were that were decided on it that had to do with Native Americans that wanted to use peyote and Brazilian Indians who wanted to use ayahuasca, a very psychoactive tea. Uh, and both of those cases uh, were decided for the religions. Because, again, we're talking about whether or not these people could use this particular substance. And when they do these, they, they go to the courts, the, the, the tests. Believe it or not, there's two tests. There's one called the lemon test and there's one called the sherbet test. <laughs> sherbet. There's a lemon test and there's a sherbet test. <laughs> Honest to God. Uh, and they have to do with these, you know, these points that have to be proven basically, or, or logic thought trains that you have to go through to be able to make these decisions. And it has a lot to do with a balance like, okay, we want to have it so that people can practice their religion and government doesn't mess with them for that. Okay. So if Muslim women want to wear a hijab and you know, the government saying they got to take it off for their driver's license photo, we got to we got to talk about that because is the government overstepping its bounds right you know the government's got a legitimate interest to make sure we can identify people on government documents and such but that religion has a particular strong interest among many of its women that it is immodest and and unholy to not cover hair and just show the face right so how do you balance that should the government be able to force them to take that thing off to get a driver's license or should they have their religion respected because how much does wearing the thing stop the objective of the government? 
Like, we can still identify a woman by her eye color and the way her face looks, and especially more and more as we have facial recognition technology, being able to see your hair doesn't make much difference. Now, you start throwing the veil in there, and all we can see is the eyes. Now, maybe we've got a different question, right? But I, the only reason I bring that whole thing up is to provide another comparison for us to understand that when the government looks at these religious test questions, they got the same sort of test. The government's got compelling interests in enforcing the law and keeping people from harming one another, but also religions have a compelling interest in practicing their faith in a certain way without interference. So the uh, the big obvious one would be to say, well, you belong to an Aztec death cult that believes in sacrificing virgins to the volcano god. But the government has the compelling interest to protect citizens, including virgins, from being murdered. And that, you do the balance, and it's really the government wins on that one. You can't have a religion where an Aztec religion where you can sacrifice virgins because the government's got to stop people from murdering people. But then when you get to the question of the ayahuasca or the, uh, the peyote, the government's compelling interest is stopping people from doing drugs. Now, we can argue that that's wrong, that it shouldn't be their compelling interest, but right now it is. And it's under statute and treaty that it's their compelling interest. So the 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 foundation might be suspect, but you have to accept the foundation exists right now. And the government's compelling interest is to stop people from doing harmful, dangerous drugs, of which peyote and ayahuasca are schedule one, the most dangerous drugs that there can be. Even though that's not true of those drugs either, that's what the law says. So their compelling interest, stop people from doing peyote and ayahuasca. The Native Americans and the Brazilian Indians, their compelling interest is, hey, this is a spirit guide thing. This is a hallucinogenic trip from which we gain much spiritual uh, awakening and connection with the, you know, the whole whatever it is. I'm not a religious guy, <laughs> but that's their argument, right? And the courts came down and did the test and they said, well, you know what? How just like if 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 the woman kept the the hijab on. Would we still be able to identify her? Yes, we would. So she can keep the hijab on. If we had to pick people that were seriously religious about peyote and ayahuasca, would we still be able to figure it out? Yeah, because they belong to these small little churches of very defined belonging. Like you have to belong to a tribe and those are, you know, federally you know registered Indian tribes and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So we have a pretty strong way of saying that you're not just faking it to make it. And ayahuasca and peyote aren't popular. Not a whole lot of people do those drugs. So it's not going to really stop the federal government from stopping the other people from doing those drugs because not a lot of people do them in the first place. So that's how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is applied to these hallucinogenic substances. The problem is, is the cases so far that have come before the courts that have to do with cannabis do that same balancing test and they find, uh-oh, the problem is it's not one, it's not reasonably easy to identify who are the members of a particular cannabis church. Because there's so many of them and so many people that start the healing church, the herbal church, Bob's house of pot, whatever they call them. So there's, it's hard to identify which churches are legit and far too many people smoke pot, like 28 million people smoke pot. 
And if we let these few religious people smoke it, how are we going to keep out the other 27, 28 million people who also want to smoke it from claiming that they're suddenly religious? Letting the Native Americans use ayahuasca and peyote doesn't stop the government from keeping ayahuasca and peyote illegal because it's such a small, tiny thing. But marijuana is the most used drug there is. Letting one small group, that's like the hole in the, in the dam, and then the whole dam bursts. Which is kind of what's going on in Colorado as compared to Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma. The dam is bursting. I just don't see how the religious way, ru- way works. And as an atheist, it just kind of offends me that you're trying to get special rights for yourself that we don't get. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Normal stands for responsible adult cannabis use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks even though the risks may be far less than those posed by legal drugs. The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. Uh, I have a package here for Radical Rick. Is there a Radical Rick here? How about a Rick Russ? Any any Rick Russ? Somebody named Freddie Barack has sent him a package. Anybody? What is that? Sounds like a stuff. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back here, and uh, we're going to close things out for the hour, but thanks for joining us. We're here every weekday at 3 p.m. Pacific time, and uh, replays on demand on CannabisRadio.com. Also, shout out to my friends at 420Radio.org, Herb Thrasher and Timmy Harris, still running the show out there at 420Radio.org. Be running the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour tomorrow night live on the 420radio.org. If you're into heavy metal, join me and Herb Thrasher for that. 8 p.m. Pacific time, Friday and Saturday nights on 420radio.org. As we close, I got some news from Herb Thrasher who pointed me to a story coming out of Limestone County, Alabama. 
Limestone County, Alabama is one of many counties, many school districts that subjects their students to random drug testing. And so, according to the story, they've been drug testing school athletes, grades 9 through 12. So your high school athletes, freshman to senior, subject them to random drug testing. And Rusty Bates, who I will uh, refer to, Rusty Bates is the district's safety, athletics, and transportation director. Henceforth, we shall call him Mr. Bates. Mr. Bates said, quote, we felt like that was missing the mark, that it was very ineffective, end quote, because, now check this out, check the logic here. They would only test about 100 students a year and would receive little to no positive results. 100 students a year, little to no positives. Mr. Bates says it would be naive to accept that as a true representation. Quote, it'd be foolish to not think drugs are apparent in some of our schools, in all of our schools, end quote, said Mr. Bates. <laughs> so you tested 100 kids, you didn't get enough positives. Well, that can't be right. Certainly our kids are doing drugs. Of course they're doing more drugs than this. The, the small number we're getting back can't possibly be true. <laughs> well, what's the point of your testing then? If you don't believe the testing. Well, that's the thing is he didn't believe the testing. He thought the testing wasn't going far enough. Ah, we're only testing the high school athletes. So the other kids using drugs must not be high school athletes. So what we got to do, according to Mr. Bates, is to expand the drug testing program to the seventh and eighth graders to all student participants in any extracurricular extracurricular activity, band, chess club, drama, future farmers of America, whatever, any extracurricular, swim team, whatever it is, math club, <laughs> gay straight student alliance, whatever it might be, we're going to drug test you. And all students who drive to school and apply for a parking permit. So if you if if you're anything if if you go to school on the school bus we won't drug test you. If you go to school on the school bus we won't drug test you but only if you don't participate in school in any other way but the bare minimum of going to school and learning. We won't drug test you. <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, it had been up to this point that the kids had to go to a third-party location, some drug testing facility, to get tested. Now, they're going to do it on campus. They're going to do your piss test at the school if you want to be a seventh grader on the in the chess club in Limestone County, Alabama, according to Mr. Bates. So, of course, the justification, he says, Mr. Bates says, quote, when peer pressure strikes down, I want them to use us as an out for saying, hey, I'm not going to do this, end quote. This is the old, peer pressure is so hard to overcome that the only way they can overcome it is if they're afraid of some punishment that we will mete out against them. No, you know what the drug testing does? Is it diverts the kids away from the marijuana and toward the alcohol and the prescription pills that don't show up as easily on the tests. It also fosters a sense of distrust 
between the students and their administrators and takes kids that might be developing a problem or at risk of developing a problem and takes them away from what we know keeps them away from drugs and that is extracurricular activities a feeling of belonging and acceptance and instead we isolate and punish them if these kids test positive the seventh graders you know trying out for the chess club they are suspended from their extracurricular participation for a year a full year they have to be out of chess club or banned gosh I wonder what those kids caught doing drugs are going to do with all that extra time. That's all the time we got for today. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a your planet, you're it, you're trying, you're rolling, you're smoking. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down to earth.